Professor Georgina Long, co-director of the Melanoma Institute of Australia, who's had quite the last few days. Last Thursday, she, alongside her colleague and friend, Professor Richard Scolier, were named Australian of the Year. They're credited with saving thousands of lives. And last June, Professor Scolier was diagnosed with glioblastoma, an incurable brain cancer. Now, rather than undergoing traditional treatment, instead, he became a guinea pig, with Professor Long designing world-first treatments based on their melanoma work. That pioneering immunotherapy treatment for advanced melanoma has resulted in five-year survival rates, increasing from less than 5% to more than 50%. Now, being a blue-eyed redhead, I've grown up with a spectre of skin cancer all my life. I asked Georgina Long, is melanoma still a death sentence? It was a death sentence, in fact. Um, I shouldn't say it was in every case. If caught early or if the melanoma on the skin was particularly thin, uh, a simple surgical excision was curative in most cases, in 95% of cases. But if the melanoma spread, so sets up secondaries around the body, little melanoma cancer cell escapes from where you originally had it, let's say you had one on your arm, on your skin, on your arm, sets up home in the lung or the liver or the brain, that was almost 100% a death sentence. Not many people would make it to a year after being diagnosed with what we call advanced melanoma or late stage melanoma. That's where it's spread and you have secondaries. Um, And now more than 55% of people are being cured uh, with immunotherapy. More more than 55% of people are living beyond five years. And, yeah, it's absolutely changed the game, the Mm. treatments we use for late stage. Very different to when you were growing up. Yeah, it's (laughs) it's absolutely turned around, which is extraordinary. Um, And the immunotherapy itself, and the immunotherapy perhaps to the layperson, counterintuitively before surgery. Tell me how it was that you developed that and went down that path. So um, in cancer, when you have melanoma or any cancer that we consider resectable, like we can cut it out, um, particularly, and this is, I'm now going into the history of this type of treatment. So this type of treatment where you, you refer to it as giving the drug before you cut it out is called neoadjuvant. It means before surgery. But the whole concept of giving any drug is to mop up any little stray cancer cells that may escape into the circulation or into what we call your lymphatics and plant a home elsewhere, so distantly as a secondary. That's what drug therapy does. It tries to prevent secondaries or spread. But when you give it before the surgery to remove the cancer, that's called neoadjuvant. And that concept has been around for decades for cancers such as breast cancer or esophageal cancer, so your food pipe. Why? because giving drug before surgery may in fact enable you to save the organ. So instead of having 
your whole breast removed, like a, a mastectomy, you would have a lumpectomy if you could shrink the tumour down. So that's called organ mm. preservation. So that's historically where neoadjuvant, the concept of doing it before surgery came from. It was really only for organ preservation. The standard would have been cut it out and then give mop-up drug therapy, and that we call adjuvant drug therapy. So um, this is the history of it. With melanoma, we had no success with standard drug therapies, as we mentioned before, mm. and had this incredible success with immune therapies for late-stage melanoma. And then we thought, well, what if, and because we were getting cures, like completely disappearing, we thought, well, what if we take earlier stage melanoma, like melanoma where it's only gone to the nearby lymph nodes, that's called stage three. So let's say I had a melanoma on my forearm and it was a bit nasty and it had spread as far as my lymph nodes, that's called stage three. That's not mm. late stage. If it spreads beyond the lymph nodes in my armpit, that would then be called late stage. So let's just say it's stage three. That's high-risk early-stage melanoma. The standard is cut it out, and it used to be just watch. And then we showed that immunotherapies work after surgery. And then our next step was to show that let's do it before surgery. And then we actually noticed, wow, we seem to be curing more people when we give immunotherapy before surgery. Mm. That's actually different to chemotherapy in breast cancer or esophageal. It's equivalent whether you give it before or after. It's the same. You're just preserving the organ. But in melanoma, we're actually getting a benefit, and that's because when you have the tumour on board and you give the immune treatment first, remember the, well, just to explain to listeners, Immune therapy does not kill the cancer directly. It's your own immune system. And the immune therapy is a drug that stimulates your immune system to do the work. Mm. When you have your cancer on board, the immune system is better trained. It's like sniffer dogs at the airport. You just don't take any dog to find drugs. You, you take trained dogs that know what they're looking for. That's what we're doing by giving immunotherapy first. We're training the immune system better because it can see the enemy. Because there is more out. of the enemy. Not because it's there's more necessarily. We're still working out why it works so well. We hypothesize and wonder whether the lymph nodes are actually part of your immune system. Normally, all of us have lymph nodes everywhere. There are these little grape-like structures that we have around our neck, everywhere, neck, all through our chest, armpits, elbows, behind our knees, groins, all through our abdomen. And they are our fighter organ for when we have infections or um, um, viruses or you know, bacterial infections. They blow up and grow an army of immune cells to fight off that enemy, whether it be a virus or a bacteria. So these are immune organs, and we're still working out with our research that we do in our laboratory whether the cancer being in the lymph nodes has a special additive enhancement to training your immune system. And that's why doing it early 
and when in the lymph nodes works so well. We're not sure on that. It's a balance, actually. It's a balance. You don't want too much cancer on board because that can overwhelm the immune system and be more difficult to mm. treat. Um, when it's really big, bulky, often that's just the biology of the cancer as well. They're not that responsive to immune therapy as well, whether it's big or bulky or not. It's more the kinetics. But but there is a hypothesis that you just want enough cancer to train the immune system, but not too much that the biology of the cancer is so aggressive that it's actually harder. It's actually immunosuppressive itself, mm. the cancer itself. Does that make sense, what I've just explained? It, it does make sense. I'm interested as well in what having immunotherapy actually involves for the patient and also what is it like for quality of life of patients going through this sort of thing because people will know that that some of the other cancer treatments like chemo can really whack people around. So um, the immunotherapy, as you correctly point, it's quite correctly point out it's very different to chemotherapy chemotherapy pushes cells down kills cells kills off your immune system this is different this is actually pushing your immune system up and specifically getting your immune cells to kill cancer cells so it doesn't directly kill the cancer cells very different from chemotherapy um so the thing about immunotherapy side effects which that's what impacts quality of life funnily enough actually when we did a study on quality of life, just as a side comment, um, surgery actually impacts quality of life a lot worse, but it's temporary. So you mm. get a temporary blip in the quality of life, really quite significant blip, but then it comes back up again. It's a temporary impact. But back to immunotherapy, any issues about quality of life are often twofold, particularly in what we call late stage cancer. And that is Number one, the existential pressure crisis of having a cancer that is terminal, that causes a decrease in quality of life, depression, or, you know, a, a reaction to such a stressor. And the second one, uh, or the three actually, the second one is drugs. They mm. can cause impacts on your quality of life. And the third one is the cancer itself. Mm. So if the cancer is not responding and growing, that impacts your quality of life. So there are three aspects to it. So turning to immunotherapy and focusing on the side effects, remembering that cancer itself can impact the quality of life and the psychology and the existential crisis can impact your quality of life. But turning to side effects specifically, that impact, uh, immunotherapy works by stimulating the immune system upwards. Sometimes the immune system can get confused and can attack normal tissue places it likes to attack uh, the skin so patients can get a little bit of an itch or a rash very rarely can patients get a very severe skin reaction but they can uh, very severe where we have to take them off drugs or give them wet what we call wet dressings is about five in a thousand that's that's very uncommon to be that severe um so so that's good news it's it's usually just a mild itch or sometimes a red mild red rash that can doesn't necessarily need to be itchy the other one is the thyroid can be impacted. Your thyroid can become overactive. That's called thyroiditis as your immune system attacks the thyroid and releases all the uh, hormone into your blood. The thyroid sits in our neck. Mm. Um, and then you become hypothyroid, so it becomes underactive as the thyroid dies. That's very easily fixed with a replacement tablet. In fact, 10% of women over 40 from northern European countries or descent 
have thyroid problems and are on thyroid tablets. It's very easily managed. It does not require a lot of um, blood tests, et cetera, to get it right. It's, it's not a major issue at all. If you're a younger woman and wanting to get pregnant, it can be an issue, but that can be managed as well. The, the obstetrician and endocrinologist look at that closely while you're pregnant uh, and change the doses of your thyroid replacement. So that's another common one. Uh, another common one is you can get diarrhea because the immune system attacks the bowel. Um, that is generally mild when we're using only one immune drug, but in melanoma, if you've got a really risky or dangerous or aggressive melanoma, we combine immune treatments. We use multiple immune drugs together. And then, of course, your risk of that sort of side effect goes up higher. Uh, but if you're just using one immune drug, which is the mainstay, and I believe that's what's available in New Zealand, just the one uh, immune treatment, uh, the risk of diarrhea in that case is about 15% and it's generally mild. There is about 1% to 2% of people that might get a more severe diarrhea or colitis. Um, and then there are a whole host. In fact, when you fiddle with the immune system hmm. with these drugs, any organ can be affected. Any organ is up for grabs by your immune system. It can attack your joints, your eyes, your lungs, your liver, your kidneys, that they're much, much less frequent, hmm. much less frequent. For example, attacking your lungs happens in about three in a hundred patients. And generally we're so clued into it, we pick it up early. Sometimes we just stop the drug, it goes away on its own and the patient's fine. Or we might need to use a short course of steroids and in the very, very rare, severe categories. I must say if the if it's attacking the lungs and it's severe, often that's because it hasn't been picked up or the patient hasn't reported the early symptoms or there's, you know, there's just a delay in actually picking up on that that um, diagnosis. Rarely does it come on really quickly. It can. Mm. But anyway, there's a whole host of side effects that are, that are not common. If you get one, it does not mean you're going to get all. Um, the, there is a rare patient that will get many, as in four or five of them. I can remember my patients and I treat thousands of, over my career, I've treated literally thousands of patients with these drugs. But I can remember the patients who get what we call, you know, multiple immune toxicities. They often don't happen after the first dose. Uh, for most people who do get one or two of the side effects, it would happen after the second or third dose. And the other good news is if you're responding and we see the cancer starting to shrink away and you've got a side effect that's reasonably severe, we stop completely. And these patients, most of them are cured. You don't have to treat again. Some patients I have have had four doses and that's it. Um, so overall, quality of life from immune toxicities, when we look at the actual data from the trials, the quality of life is not significantly decreased at all. The, the problem for some patients are that one or two patients that have a bad experience and they get bad side effects. But that's not going to be seen in a massive, you know, trial where you've got 500 patients in each arm. And that's amazing because if you do large trials with things like, old, you know, chemotherapy in the olden days, you do see a detriment in quality of life. Mm. Um, so, so I guess what I'm saying is overall um, people do get side effects, um, they're immune-related, they're from overactivation of the immune system. It's not predictable. We can't tell you who's going to get what. 
uh, only about 20%, two in 10 patients, do we need to actually intervene either with the treatment or stopping therapy? In fact, much less have to stop therapy due to a side effect. Um, and the side effects are treatable. The ones that are not reversible, there are some that are not reversible or, you know, go back to normal. And that's the thyroid. I mentioned that you have to replace the thyroid, hmm. the pituitary. That's another hormone gland that can stop working. That's very rare with just one drug, PD-1. And But again, that requires hormone replacement. And that's that can be done relatively easily, not as easily as thyroid, but, you know, very well, very good quality of life. There's one that's much rarer. It's about eight in a thousand people, and that's type one diabetes. That's the diabetes the kids get, but you get it if you have this drug and uh, one of the rare people that get it. And those people need insulin. It's like type one diabetes, so they immediately need insulin. But that's about eight in a thousand people, mm. and we can't predict who's going to get that. But when you look at the studies and the large numbers of patients, quality of life is very well retained, uh, but there may be one or two or three people um, every hundred that may be impacted more than the average person on these drugs. Overall, single immunotherapy, what we call anti-PD-1, is one of the best tolerated drugs in cancer. It's remarkable. And has revolutionised the situation for melanoma. Where do you take the technology next? How do you refine these sorts of treatments to make them even better? That's a great question. So first of all, these drugs are now used in lung cancer, kidney cancer, bladder cancer, head and neck cancer, Merkel cell carcinoma and various other cancers, all because of melanoma. It was melanoma that did uh, in melanoma, we've been working on the immune system and, and cancer for decades, but so that's one thing is moving it over to other cancers and trying to cure other cancers. But there are two aspects that need to be worked on the whole cancer field. Um, and we, we're trying to refine our immune treatments, leveraging the immune system. So we've got a lot more work to do. We're at Melanoma Institute Australia. We're trying to get to zero deaths from melanoma. Um, we're just talking about drug therapies, but there are other ways to get to zero deaths, very pertinent to New Zealand as well, which mm. has a very high incidence, as, a, as does Australia, and, and that's prevention, but we'll get to that in a minute. Mm. But focus back on drug therapies. We're curing about, let's say, 50% of people with advanced melanoma to cure the rest with drugs, that is, and that's not the most cost-efficient. The best thing to do is prevent the disease altogether, uh, but we are working on how cancers become resistant and there's two ways or three ways actually that we're trying to optimize immune therapies number one toxicity management when you've got a really nasty cancer and an or a nasty melanoma that's spread sometimes we will give multiple immune treatments as i said before so several drugs combined and the toxicity goes up there's a lot more work to do on toxicity and how to manage it We've now had a lot of experience at Melanoma Institute Australia, so we've become very good at it, but still some people get some side effects that can be uh, impact their quality of life. We can be more specific with some of our um, antidotes to the immune system. At the moment, we use 
general immune suppressants to turn the immune system off, but we're now getting better at choosing quite selective drugs to turn bits of the immune system off. And that can be uh, much better for patients and to get the side effect under control. Like let's say a patient has a really, really bad diarrhea or what we call colitis. Uh, another way is knowing when to go in with your doses. So this is again, just from experience, many of the early trial protocols with these drugs, uh, medical oncologists would go in with the second dose or their third dose of immune therapies as per the protocol. But there were some red flags that we now know with our experience that would be don't go in yet, just wait to decrease the risk of a patient getting a bad toxicity. Uh, uh, Richard Scolia, who who is my colleague, co-medical director at Melanoma Institute Australia and has uh, glioblastoma and I'm treating with combination immunotherapy. I've had him on combination immunotherapy now for eight months. That's nearly unheard of in, in, in the cancer world, but that's because of the nuances of managing side effects and when to delay and when to go in and to when to go in with what. So it can be done. So that's another area we need to work on in cancer is spreading the word on these nuances of managing toxicity. So, the other, so that's one area, mm. managing toxicity, getting better at it, the nuances of it. And then the second thing is optimising combinations. I think we're doing a pretty good job in melanoma, but it would be good to work in other cancers to see whether they could be optimised in those cancers as well. One of the big issues, though, as I said before, is toxicity. So that goes hand in hand with toxicity management. And then the third plank in immunotherapies are these novel ways of stimulating the immune system specifically against cancer. And we're doing a lot of work in that space as well, based on what we are looking at in our lab as the resistance mechanisms to immunotherapy. What I can tell you is they're very broad and heterogeneous. There are many, many resistance mechanisms to immune treatment, why a patient's tumour can overcome the immune system. And it's not the patient, it's the tumour, it's smart. And so we're working on drugs that attack that so that we can try and increase the cure rate. But as I said before, we're better actually, better off actually trying to focus on prevention rather than um, waiting till someone has the disease, waiting until it's advanced and then trying to cure them, then it's far better money spent for society if we prevent the disease. You're talking about prevention. Um, I guess a lot of people will know that, you know, sunburn is a bad thing and it can raise your chances of skin cancer. Tanning, though, in itself, uh, you know, especially at this time of year, what do you think when you when you have a walk along the beach and you see people sunning themselves? What about no, when you hear people in, going and mm. using a tanning salon, like going on the tanning beds? So we know UV radiation from tanning beds or from the sun causes skin cancer. That scientific fact is not in doubt. We also know that tanning is your skin's defense mechanism to trauma. So a tan 
is the uh, canary in the mine telling you that you are causing damage to your your skin cells and you are increasing your risk of skin cancer. Simple as that. Tanning equals much higher risk of skin cancer. So um, there isn't anything healthy about a tan. I was so just about to just, say, is there any such thing as a healthy tan? No, there is no such thing as a healthy tan. So two-pronged approach there. We, we, we'd we like to stop glamorising tanning. It, we want to remove from our language, oh, wow, you look so great. You've got a tan. You've just come back from holiday. That is that is not what we want. We do not want to make a tan beautiful. Everyone's got different skin. Love the skin you're in. And uh, then the second prong to that is uh, uh, know the skin you're in so that if you do see things changing, go and seek help and get a, get a doctor's opinion on it. But But knowing the skin you're in, liking the skin you're in is a great start to stopping glamorization of tanning and there's nothing healthy about a tan. That's primary prevention. That's just take away the cause of melanoma so you don't get melanoma and other skin cancers. That's the other benefit. We're not only preventing melanoma, we're preventing other skin cancers, which um, us taxpayers in each of our respective countries, it costs us a lot as taxpayers, our nation, to treat skin cancer in general. Mm. Then the secondary prevention is, well, getting things early. So if you see changes on your skin, go and seek help. And that's much, very effective, much more effective than everyone just, every citizen having a skin check once a year. That's got no evidence behind it. In fact, in Germany, they did that and that did not improve survival from melanoma at all. So we're now looking at targeted screening. So people who have skin that they think is fine, they don't see anything wrong with it, but they are at high risk of melanoma going and getting a screening skin check at a regular interval we're doing research on who that population should be it shouldn't be everybody but it should be the high risk population given the germans found no benefit mm. to just rolling that out um but that's secondary prevention where you're saying okay you've had the risk you've had the exposure uv sun now just try and get the disease early um we're we're much better spending our money at primary prevention. Let's just take away the causative agent. Get out there. I mean, New Zealand's a beautiful country, just like Australia. Great outdoors. We're both outdoor nations. Uh, we love our outdoors. We love our sports. We're proud of our nations. Mm. Um, we're not saying don't get out there. We're just saying get out there safely. And the best defense is going to be staying out of the, you know, high UV days. If you're out there, wear a hat, sunglasses, clothing, seek shade when you're not doing your activity or if activity is in direct sun, seek shade. And then sunscreen. Sunscreen's good, but it's the last of the planks. It's not as effective as the previous four. You're much better off wearing hat, glasses, clothing and seeking shade than mm. just using sunscreen. Um, so, and the reason is sunscreen's not applied properly often and it's not reapplied. Um, so that's the problem with sunscreen. And if anyone thinks that, oh, I put on my sunscreen, I'm out in the sun and now I've got a wonderful tan, I'm protected, you're not. The fact you have a tan is your body telling you you have put your skin under trauma and your skin is trying to defend you from cancer. 
eventually uh, UV and sun, when you expose your skin to it, we see this in the test, the studies we've done, the DNA gets damaged and eventually you accumulate or, or the DNA damage just is the straw that breaks the camel back and then your normal skin cells, particularly a skin cell called melanocyte, that's the normal mm. skin cell that has pigment in it, eventually the DNA damage gets so much that it becomes a cancer cell. It's immortal. The cell cannot fix itself. It cannot heal itself. It becomes a cancer cell. So, yeah, there's nothing healthy about a tan. Mm. You've had a bit of a week. You won Australian of the Year this week alongside uh, your co-director at the Melanoma Institute. Congratulations. What does it mean to have an award at that level? Oh, it's um, a huge honour and um, humbling to actually receive an award at this level. But it does mean that we've got an amazing platform and opportunity to make a difference and our lives have been uh, committed to making a difference. So this is a wonderful opportunity. But Mm. the, the accolade to be to you know the accolade represents not just Richard and I it's a team effort to our team at Melanoma Institute Australia fantastic group of people towards our you know working together towards our goal of zero deaths from melanoma and impacting other cancers along the way uh, but also all the patients over the years who have allowed us to collect their data, mm. who have participated in clinical trials, who have allowed us to bank some of their melanoma tissue, those people um, are part of this team because that's how we've made change. Mm. And then, of course, our families who have supported us along the way, supported our ridiculous work hours, our passion to make a difference. Um, so the accolade goes to everybody. And I would hope that it brings the nation together. Cancer impacts everybody, mm. no matter where you fit on the political spectrum. Um, and we can do something together. And it's a, a great example of multi-skilled people coming together to, to make a difference. Mm. We all have different skills that are important to make this difference. And Richard and I are different skills. Richard's a pathologist. So that's a doctor who looks down the microscope to make diagnosis. Um, and so he sees he sees bits of patients, not the whole patient. Um, and I'm a medical oncologist, so I treat patients with drug therapies uh, with advanced mm. or high risk, high risk early stage melanoma, and I do clinical trials with these drug therapies. Yeah. I guess speaking of such things, and speaking of Richard, um, your co-recipient, your colleague, your friend, how is he? Because as you mentioned earlier, he has. Glioblastoma, uh, which is an incurable brain cancer, but you have been experimenting on him. Um, so, tell me a bit about the treatment. I guess it's it's last ditch stuff. But what is it? What is it showing? What are the the scans and the tests showing you? So what we did is normally you would have surgery to the brain cancer followed by chemo and radiation together for six weeks, followed by chemotherapy on its own for another four months. So it's a six-month treatment. So we did not do the standard treatment. Uh, With the standard treatment, the median or the average sort of survival is around 14, 15 months. Um, 
So we did not go with the standard treatment. Richard had the worst of the worst glioblastoma. He didn't just have a glioblastoma. He had one with the worst what we call prognostic features. It had the worst characteristic molecular characteristics um, that suggests it's going to do very poorly, even worse than those statistics I just gave you. But mm. um, so with that, uh, while Richard was in Poland when he was first diagnosed, um, and I was just the first 24 hours were just grief stricken. I was thinking, well, yeah, we're cancer researchers. What can we do differently here? Um, And then one of my colleagues also encouraged me, Professor Helen Rizos, she's a fantastic scientist. Yeah, what can we, you know, asking me, what can you do? What can you do differently? Um, And it gave us a buffer while he was in Poland to think, and I thought, you know, this neoadjuvant therapy, and I just we just did a whole heap of reading. I read so many papers on the mitre, what we call the microenvironment, what's around the tumor. Is it does it have a lot of immune cells regularly? You know, what's its tumor mutation burden? What have they seen? Uh, I just read and read and read and um thought, you know, this is just like a terrible, terrible, terrible melanoma. Um, they do badly and and we, what do we do? We use multiple immunotherapies. It's never been done with glioblastoma. They'd only ever done immune therapies with a single drug after the standard. So after radio, after chemo, half the patients were on what we call steroids, which I mentioned before, which suppress mm. your immune system. So, you know, you're not giving much of a chance there. If I did that to a melanoma patient, gave them chemo, radio, steroids, and then tried my immune therapies, it wouldn't work. It worked in very, very few patients. So no wonder the field was saying, the glioblastoma field was saying, ah, oh, no, immunotherapies don't work. Well, yes, they don't work in that setting. It'd be very rare. Um, and so they'd done trials or and studies after the standard, but not upfront. And so that was, and there was only one drug they used. So what we did is two things. I used multiple immune drugs, which is what I would use for a bad melanoma. Mm. And we used it up front when Richard's strong, his immune system's great and he's well. It's risky because the big fear, and we delayed the surgery Mm. to let the immune system, let those sniffer dogs work so they could see the tumour. And the risk was that if we left it too long, it would just grow very, very quickly and it'd be worse neurologically. That's what our surgeon was worried about. She was all for it, Dr. Brinda Shivalingam. Why? Because she'd worked with us in melanoma brain that had spread to the brain and she does glioblastoma. She does both. And she ended up in waiting to try something like this. But we negotiated with her a 12-day interval from drug to surgery We wanted to push it a bit longer. Uh, In melanoma, we wait six weeks, um, that neoadjuvant. But for Richard, we waited almost two weeks. Um, And that's what we did. And what we found when we removed his tumour and compared it to the biopsy he had at the get-go before we gave the drug, so we had a little biopsy to prove what sort of brain cancer it was. It was an open biopsy. He actually had his skull cracked open to get enough tissue um, to prove what it was, then we gave him drug, then we cut the rest, then Brenda cut the rest of the tumour out as much as she could. These sort of tumours, you can never get all of them. You just can't. Um, it's the nature of its roots that goes right through the brain. 
it would not be compatible with life to remove all the tumor. So you get as much as you can out. That's what Brinda did. And then when we compared it, we saw tenfold increase of immune cells intermixed with the tumor. These immune cells were activated. So they were activated against something and the drug was bound to those immune cells that were in his tumor. So that was pretty phenomenal. We were not expecting that. That's that's massive when mm. you, when all the data suggests this tumor is completely not immune sensitive, and that's because the trials are done very late. Uh, this was this was remarkable. His scans are clear at the moment. Um, he's eight months in. It's still early days. Um, I, the average time to seeing progression is usually around the six to seven months. Uh, so we're, we're hopeful. Um, but if, if, we, if this cured him, that'd be amazing, amazing. Of course, you're going to want this to succeed. Of course you do. He's your friend, he's your colleague. But if it does succeed, are you going to know why? What can be extrapolated from this? Absolutely. In fact, whether it does not or does succeed, we will learn from this. And that is Professor Georgina Long, co-recipient of Australian of the Year. If you want to hear that interview too with her colleague, Dr Richard Scolier, that she was talking about there, that's from last year and there's a link to it on our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash Saturday. Lots and lots of feedback coming in. Uh, during that interview. Shane from Wellington says, it is wonderful there is now this amazing way to treat advanced melanoma. 12 years ago, he says, my wife Gillian was diagnosed with multiple melanoma uh, which had metastasized through her liver, lung, esophagus. The only drug was chemo. Other drugs required specific mutations to work. After one dose, her liver was incapable of tolerating a second and she died 14 weeks after diagnosis. Shane, I'm so sorry to hear that, but he does say, I'm so happy to hear about immunotherapy. Also another one in saying, I can't speak highly enough of immunotherapy. My husband was diagnosed with melanoma secondaries in his brain and lungs nine months ago. After operation, radiotherapy and immunotherapy, he has almost wiped it. Incredible results so far. Thank you, researchers. 